Botox Cosmetic, out of botulinum toxin A, FDA approved for over 20 years. So, talk to your specialist to see if Botox Cosmetic is right for you. For full prescribing information, including boxed warning, visit BotoxCosmetic.com or call 877-351-0300. Remember to ask for Botox Cosmetic by name. To see for yourself and learn more, visit BotoxCosmetic.com. That's BotoxCosmetic.com. Namihin Nui and welcome. From RNZ National, here's our changing world. It's time for a marine medley, featuring some interesting tidbits I came across at the New Zealand Marine Sciences Society recent annual conference. First up, Shane Kelly from Coast and Catchment tells me about trying to restore mussel beds in the Hauraki Gulf. Well, there's a pretty fascinating history of the Hauraki Gulf where, for many centuries I suppose, um, a lot of the inner gulf was covered in, in mussel beds and uh, they were dredged out between the 1920s and the 1960s and in the 50-year period since those um, beds collapsed in terms of the mussels in them, um, there's been no recovery. So in 2013, a group was formed called the Mussel Reef Restoration Trust, and their aim is to restore some of those beds. So why do you want to restore mussels to the Gulf? What was the ecological role they had? They were probably one of the most important ecological habitats in the, in the Gulf. Um, you know, mussels form really complex habitats. They have a three-dimensional structure which attracts fish and invertebrates and um, sponges, all those sorts of things, and so they, they live on the mussels. And when you take the mussels out, what you're left with is this soft sediment. Now we've got a, a thick layer of soft sediment, probably around you know 30 centimetres to maybe half a metre thick. It's lying on top of old shell beds of, of mussels, and in terms of the ecological values of those soft sediments are nowhere near as, as productive as those old mussel beds. And the mussels filtered the water as well? Are they good at taking sediment out of the water? Oh, they can, they can take out huge volumes of, of sediment, but also they feed on, on phytoplankton, so that's what they, they're, they're trying to take out, but they also take out um, sediments and other particles in the water column as well. So with this ambitious idea of can we restore the mussel beds, how did you go about doing that? Well, I've been really lucky. We've had a lot of support from the mussel farming industry, and so they've generously donated around 80 tonnes of mussels to get us going um, to date. So we've established um, two areas. Um, one was a, a sort of proof concept area, so we put out seven tonnes in our first year, and in the second year um, that got scaled up to another 70 tonnes in, in an area offshore from one of those those first year beds. And what's happened with those mussels? Well we've seen quite a lot of losses in the first sort of four, four month period and that's probably because the, the mussels were stressed when they come off the farms, a lot of them are injured so, so quite large losses in the, that early period but since then after that four, four months we've had pretty stable abundances of, of the mussels in the 70 tonne bed and also pretty stable for biomass but long term one of the key issues is going to be overcoming um, mud because the, the gulf's changed quite significantly and, and mussels don't really not like living in those muddy areas. So they're tolerating it but they're not thriving? But... Yeah, that'd be fair to say. And well, so there's a couple of options we have. We can identify areas that, that aren't that muddy and then use those areas. Or another thing we're going to try is putting down shell in the muddy areas and try and build up a base that will allow us to get the mussels up out of the mud. Are you planning to go ahead and do some more trials, putting more mussels out? Oh, well, 
probably the main problem we've got at the moment is that um, mussel farms also attract other un- unwanted species. Um, so these are species that have come in from overseas and colonised new areas. And, and so one of the problems we've got at the moment is the potential for the mussels that we're using to also be um, smothered in those unwanted species. And so you don't want to go spreading them around the gulf. That's exactly right. So, so we've got to work out a way of, of getting around that, really. So your proof of concept is kind of working, but it's a bit of watch the space at the moment? Yeah, well, it's, it's about learning by doing is what we call it. And so, so we're trying things, and we, you know, we're learning as we go and we adapt things and, and uh, hopefully you know, we get somewhere that we're doing great things in terms of restoring those beds. And in the meantime, all of that mud washing down into the Gulf, it continues to be a problem. Yeah, it's a major problem. Yeah, that, that's right. And land use practices from the past, but also, you know, we're still doing things that actually generate a lot of sediment. So, yeah, in terms of protecting and restoring the, the Gulf, um, that's, that's a key issue. And a lot of that issue behind the sediment is to do with what's going on on the land, isn't it? You know, the consequences are in the Gulf, but if you're actually going to stop it, you need to stop it on land. That's exactly right, yeah. So, so it's actually improving how we, how we are using our land and the practices for, you know, in farming, forestry, all those sorts of things. Um, that's where the sediment's coming from. Shane Kelly mentioned the importance of the mussels as substrate for other marine life. And that's exactly what Eliza Oldak has been studying. She's a research fellow at Canterbury University and she tells me on Skype about habitat cascades. So a habitat cascade is a recently defined term. It was first sort of explicitly defined in 2010 in a a paper in a scientific journal. And that definition described this series of positive interactions between species where you have different levels of habitat forming species supporting each other. So you'll have a basal habitat former, like a tree, providing habitat for vines and epiphytes. And then those vines and epiphytes provide habitat for birds and insects. So it's multiple levels of habitat formation. And you've been looking at this in a marine environment, a coastal environment in the Avon Heath Cadestrian Christchurch. That's right. So to paint a picture, when you go out into the estuary at low tide, you'll see these vast mudflats, but dotted around the mudflats are patches of of algae, of seaweed. Um, And when you look more carefully at the algae, you'll find at the base of all of it, this cockle, a clam, buried in the mud. And attached to that clam is a piece of ulva or sea lettuce. And attached to that green sea lettuce, you'll find all of these snails sort of crawling around using the sea lettuce for food or for predator avoidance. And then when you look at the back of the snail shell, you'll see it's covered with an invertebrate called a bryozoan, and attached to that bryozoan is a red algae, Gigotina. So you have six levels of habitat formation going on there, which is is pretty cool. So if you didn't have the cockles at the base, you wouldn't have all those other things. That's true. But what we've also found is the cockle is important, but also that secondary habitat former is really crucial. So if you didn't have the secondary algae in addition to the cockle, it would all sort of fall apart. You wouldn't have as many species or as high numbers of any of those species. Is this a particularly long cascade? Then you said it had six levels. Is that a long one? So it's longer than what's been described in the literature so far. So far, habitat cascade, since it's a pretty new idea, has sort of stopped at three levels, that tree, epiphyte, bird idea, the three-level cascade. Uh, And I think as we keep looking for it, we'll keep finding longer and longer cascades. But at the moment, yes, six levels is is the longest we've got. You don't think you'll find any more levels in the Avon Heathcote? 
I think if you started looking at the microbial communities, yeah, you would see invisible but definitely present levels of habitat formation going on. Now, moving from estuaries to deeper ocean. PhD student Britt Fanucci from Victoria University studies little-known deep-sea sharks that are accidentally caught in commercial fisheries. She's just discovered something very unique about the diet of one shark in particular, the prickly dogfish. I catch up with her on Skype, and by the way, apologies for the bad line. I work on a handful of deep-sea chondrithians, mainly chimeras, which are shark relatives, and these are all species that are caught as bycatch, so they're unintentionally caught by the fisheries, and they're all species we know very little about. Uh, so a lot of what I do is quite basic biology, mostly reproductive biology and diet, so we can fill in some of the, the gaps about these species. Now, one of the species you're working on, the prickly dogfish. Tell me about that as a shark. The prickly dogfish are my favourite. They're small shark. They get to about 75 centimetres long. They're found around New Zealand and Australia. And they're quite unique because, as their name suggests, they are quite prickly. So their skin, their uh, denticles um, are quite raised and gives them a very, very rough appearance. They're actually quite difficult to handle. Also, they have big eyes and they're quite dopey looking so um, they've been quite a favorite on social media as well. <laughs> now what do these prickly dogfish eat? Uh, until recently we had absolutely no idea. During my dissections I found this yellow matter in a lot of the stomachs um, which looked like egg yolk and um, a couple other stomachs had embryos and pieces of what looked like egg casings so we did some DNA analysis with a lab in Australia, and it turns out that these prickly dogfish are eating uh, chimeras, so other shark relatives. And what they do is, from what it seems, is that egg cases are laid on the ground, and the prickly dogfish would probably be swimming around. Uh, they find these egg cases, take a bite out of it. They have a very small mouth, uh, similar to kind of um, like a cookie-cutter shark. So they take a bite out of it and basically suck up all the contents in one of the, the egg cases. This sounds like a pretty unusual diet. It's very unique. To my knowledge, it's the first documented case of a wild shark uh, feeding solely on other sharks. There was a species um, in the Mediterranean, uh, similar to prickly dogfish, that seemed to eat other things as well. So it might just be a specialised preference, so when they can, um, prickly dogfish will only eat eggs, um, at least in the case of New Zealand. Uh, so far, all we have found are other uh, shark species in their stomachs. It will be quite useful in our greater understanding of this species. Finally, in our marine medley, and staying with fish eggs, here's some breaking news from Antarctica. For the past 20 or so years, Niwa biologists have been working with the Antarctic toothfish fishery. They've been collecting information on the biology of the fish and their role in the Ross Sea ecosystem. But although they know where to find adolescent and mature Antarctic toothfish, they were missing a vital piece of the life cycle puzzle. Steve Parker explains on Skype from the US. The biggest fish are up in the northern parts of the Ross Sea, up on the seamount areas, so those are mostly adult fish. Um, but on the slope of the Ross Sea and, this, and more to the south on the shelf, those are predominantly uh, sub-adult fish. Um, we don't see them in the fishery until they're about 
five or six years old at, at the youngest. Um, and then, you know, we, we can track them from there through 15 to uh, years old when they mature. And then as they grow into adults, we see them up to the most fish. You don't see too many fish that are more than about 25 to 30 years old in the fishery. Uh, the actual age structure that you see depends on where you are in the Ross Sea. So you've got a long record of working on out on the boats, out on the open sea. Your research focus has shifted in the last couple of years, hasn't it? Can you tell me about that? For the past 15 to 20 years, um, our research has been focused on developing stock assessments. So we're trying to understand uh, both how many fish there are and their their life cycle and their stock structure and where where they spawn and where the juveniles recruit and trying to put that whole uh, biological story together and and understand the interactions uh, with the fishery. But in the past few years, uh, a lot of these questions have uh, developed into more ecosystem monitoring questions and understanding the role of toothfish in the ecosystem, what eats them, what they eat, and how the whole system works and how that may be impacted by fishing. Uh, so we've started to do a lot more work at uh, understanding the role of toothfish in the system. Um, so we're, we've started some work down at Scott Base, um, based out on the sea ice in the springtime to uh, develop an index of abundance of the fish uh, locally there, because that's where most of the seals and the, uh, the killer whales, their main predators, uh, live on the southern and western margins of the Ross Sea. So we're studying toothfish there and in up in Terranova Bay um, in collaboration with Italian researchers um, to understand their diet, um, what eat, you know, what eats them, what they eat, um, how old they are when they live there, um, and what their spatial distribution may be. And so we're doing a lot more uh, development uh, to understand their role in the ecosystem, and then that will be a component of, uh, of a monitoring plan for the proposed marine protected area. You've also just discovered something very exciting, a missing piece of the puzzle. Can you tell me about that? In the northern seamounts is where we see most of the adult fish, and the information that we get from the fishery, which occurs in the summertime, suggests that the fish there may spawn in the winter, but we didn't know exactly when they would spawn. And we also don't know much about their eggs. And the reason eggs are important is because these eggs are pelagic, and we can understand a bit about the population structure if we know where these eggs may drift in the ocean currents. Um, so they may drift around the entire Rossi Gyre and then uh, end up back on the, uh, the coast of Antarctica, where they can recruit to the bottom and, uh, and then join the fishery. So that helps define the entire biological stock that we're trying to manage. Uh, finding eggs was important because we need, in order to model where those eggs may, may drift in the currents, you need to know what depth they are in the water column. So if they're at the surface, they may move much faster than if they sit very deep in the water column. So finding eggs uh, allows us to develop models that can help us define the spatial extent of the stock. And we've done that two ways on this, uh, on this research trip. So we, do, we just had a voyage uh, on the fishing vessel Janus in collaboration with uh, Tally's, a, uh, a New Zealand fishing vessel that typically operates in the Ross Sea during the summer months. We've been able to send that vessel back down in the winter. So they've fished basically the entire month of June and they're still fishing uh, right now. They're about to wrap up, so we're in the middle of July. 
Uh, no one's ever fished down there during the winter time, uh, and they've been fishing on the seamounts to try to collect adult fish in spawning conditions so we can document when spawning ac actually occurs. And then if we can collect eggs in, in the water column, we can do some experiments to determine uh, what the depth would be that those eggs would be uh, neutrally buoyant and, and then be infected along with the ocean currents at that depth. And we've also taken uh, adult fish that were ready to spawn but haven't spawned yet, and we've artificially spawned uh, those and fertilized the eggs on board. So that gives us a, um, a time zero. So you, you start with a fertilized egg, and you can start to measure the, uh, the buoyancy of those eggs um, each day because the buoyancy may change with development. Uh, so we monitor that and measure their buoyancy every day. We've been able to accomplish both tasks on this trip. We've been able to fertilize eggs from uh, fish that were in spawning condition, and we've also been able to find eggs in the water column with a plankton net in the top couple of hundred metres of water. So that's exciting. It's the missing part of their life cycle. Yeah, it is. It's really exciting. We've all had bets in the office on, uh, on if we actually see spawning or not. I, I personally thought that spawning wouldn't occur until later, until maybe into August, so finding spawning fish on some of these northern seamounts in early July is a real bonus for us um, because it, we didn't we know that they spawn in the winter, but we think that they would spawn under the ice. Um, and the ice is growing day by day down there right now uh, and, and tends to push the fishing vessel off to the north as the ice is, is forming. So there's very few spots that we could actually access where we think there might be spawning toothfish. And we've been able to find spawning toothfish on, on just those few spots. So we've been, we've been very lucky and fortunate that we've been able to document the actual timing. So we, we actually know that toothfish spawn on some particular places now. And we know that at least some of them are spawning uh, during the month of July. And we've got information on the biology and uh, physiology of their eggs. And we've been collecting all sorts of tissue samples that we'll bring back um, for further physiological analysis and genetics and, uh, and studies to help develop our ecosystem monitoring programs and our understanding of the stock structure through those samples over the coming months. Thanks for listening to this Our Changing World podcast. And you can find more stories on our webpage, rnz.co.nz slash our changing world. Kakite Botox Cosmetic, out botulinum toxin A, FDA approved for over 20 years. So talk to your specialist to see if Botox Cosmetic is right for you. For full prescribing information, including boxed warning, visit BotoxCosmetic.com or call 877-351-0300. Remember to ask for Botox Cosmetic by name. To see for yourself and learn more, visit BotoxCosmetic.com. That's BotoxCosmetic.com.